Hello and welcome to the Still Space Podcast. I'm your host, Executive Coach Mary Lee Gannon, where my guests and I share fun and simple strategies to manage yourself so that you can show up the way you want in work relationships in life and not default to past behaviors that leave you disappointed. The Still Space is where you learn to take an intentional moment to challenge habitual assumptions that hold you back with enlightened truths that boost your genius. We transform drama, resentment, doubt, unmet expectations, and self-sabotage to executive presence, self-control, deep sleep, healthy choices, and more connection with people who matter while it still matters. It's time. I invite you to subscribe to this podcast and get any of my free publications at my website, maryleegannon.com, where you can also learn more about working with me. Hi there, it's really nice to be with you today for episode number 14 of the Still Space podcast, Your Still Space, Executive Presence, and Mindful Daily Practices. Who's in charge of your thinking, the thinker or the thought? We all overthink, it brings anxiety. It derails progress and introduces perfectionism that doesn't serve any of us. We use perfectionism as a safety net for not taking risks. This almost always results in self-sabotage. It makes us feel helpless, makes us feel like we're a victim. We have racing thoughts, turbulent emotions that don't serve us. Perfectionism is about trying to avoid risks so as to earn approval. It is a self-destructive belief that fuels the thought, well, if I look and do everything perfectly, I can avoid shame, judgment, blame. We trick ourselves into thinking it's action when it is actually inaction, and perfectionism shows up when we feel unsafe in our vulnerability. This is a patterned response to anxiety, as is judgment, fear, fear of failure, blame, shame. We may even have good intention, but intention without action is simply denial. So who's in charge, the thinker or the thought? When we overthink, the thought is definitely in charge. It whooshes us along like the tide at the beach, you know what that's like, and we become a boat without oars completely at the liberty of the elements, floating around in the harbor without direction. There are those who say just be positive or be grateful. Though these statements are our true north, there is little research to prove these strategies produce a sustainable shift. And it's really like adding salt to the wound, isn't it? When you're feeling really lousy and people are saying, well, just be grateful, just be positive. That's not helpful. And there's no research to support that that works. Then you just end up feeling worse because you can't maintain being grateful or being positive. Self-defeating thoughts such as, why can't I stop thinking this way, only make things worse. Much of what is recommended in the mainstream when it comes to shifting perspective doesn't work for everyone. I hear this from my clients all the time who have tried everything, self-help books, conferences, leadership trainings, mentors, therapists, more degrees, certifications. When you say just be positive to someone who is struggling, it's just a knife right in their belly. 
Of course they want to be positive, but wishing it so isn't likely enough for someone with a difficult boss, difficult spouse, difficult family, difficult past to feel better. Behind a judgment of self and others can be regret, which at its worst brings guilt, another debilitating feeling. One of the most misunderstood aspects of guilt is that guilt is not about you or another person being bad or doing something bad. It is basically about separation from love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not accepting love. Guilt and the resulting fear are not about feeling bad about oneself. They are basically about being separated from love. If people know they are loved, they're not afraid. They're not afraid of their perceived badnesses. They feel accepted and safe. They do not have to feel good about themselves to be safe. Love does that. Love is everything. The opposite of bad is not good. It is love. So if people are feeling badly about themselves, the answer is never to get them to feel better about themselves. Forced positivity is a dead end. It is inauthentic. It feels phony. The answer is to help people feel connected to love. If they feel connected and accepted, they do not have to feel good about themselves. They are good. I remember when I was going through my divorce and the biggest rejection of my life, clearly my husband did not love me. I felt horrible about myself. And people would say, oh, but you have such great children. Isn't that enough? My parents would say, oh, just take care of your children. Just be positive. Be grateful for the kids that you have. It wasn't helpful. It was actually painful because it didn't work. And then I felt worse about myself. I had to learn to allow love in again by being vulnerable, by feeling that I didn't have to be perfect, by just being me. I was so busy trying to be mom and dad and help my children that I lost sight of who I was. And I pushed out love because I didn't feel that I deserved it. And it didn't serve me. You know, in fact, when people feel accepted, they stop being so concerned about themselves altogether and get into love instead. Feelings of badness are not something to be overcome. They are simply another symptom of the basic problem of our disconnection from love. Don't fall into the trap of trying to make a person with bad feelings develop, quote, positive feelings. That's not the answer. Getting loved is... And in order to feel love, we have to feel we're lovable. We have to be able to hold space for the discomfort that comes when we don't feel acceptance of ourselves and get curious about it. Yeah, I feel uncomfortable here. I feel like maybe I'm not lovable. Maybe I'm invisible. Maybe I'm not important. But on the other hand, and get curious, change the lens on that and say, But there are people in my life that do care about me. And I need to remember that. And I need to use self-care practices to build that moxie around my love. I need to make time for myself. I need to read books that I enjoy. I need to go on walks with my animals that I enjoy. I need to spend time with people I enjoy and remind myself that I deserve love. Because I am love. 
it is okay to not always be positive right away in the face of adversity. It is wise to admit when we feel vulnerable. It's savvy to have mindful daily practices that build your awareness of how the thinker is in charge, not the thought. That runaway train of your thoughts that try to convince you that you're not important or that you're going to fail. You're in charge. The thinker is in charge, not the thought. It's important to name the feeling that persists, even if it hurts, so you can own and move past it. You know, I'm feeling very vulnerable here. I'm feeling very put down. I'm feeling very marginalized and minimalized. Acknowledging that gives us power over it. It's realistic to see advice such as, tomorrow is another day and you're better off without that job, as nothing more than cliches. Not edicts, not judgments, truths or expectations, just cliches. Just cliches. It's strategic to realize that to authentically feel that we deserve happiness, we have to know what to release that's in its way. Here's how increased self-regulation plays at work. Well, Jason was anxious about not fitting in on the project team. He couldn't sleep, withdrew, and was afraid to speak up at meetings. It was getting worse every day. He noticed that at the root of his fear was a recollection of being made fun of in junior high for bad skin. It made him play small so as to be not noticed. This undermined his efficacy and his executive presence at work. Jason started to pay specific attention to what happened in his body when he felt like shutting down. He noticed his chest felt tight, his breathing was shallow, and his heart was racing. He began meditating in the evenings after work to become more aware of how to control his breathing and build his mind power. Now, when he notices a tense situation arising, he immediately takes a very deep breath and asks himself, what's really going on with me here? He taught himself to get curious, to be really introspective about what he was feeling, no judgment on self, to welcome it in and not be avoidant in this space, in this still space. He unravels assumptions from the truth and realizes that he does have something to offer. He tells himself, that's just me being anxious. I've got this. He focuses the anxious energy on what he has to say. He draws on his courage and contributes. It's a little scary at first, but he knows he is competent. People may not notice him at first. He will give them time. He is patient and gentle with himself. He remains true to his good character. He eventually is met with nods and smiles. It feels really nice to be included for who he is and what he brings. There will always be challenges. He now has a practice and a mindset he can rely on. Life and work are fulfilling because there is something for him to contribute I've studied the topic of mindset intensively because limiting perceptions plague most of my clients. Research points to the fact that resilience comes from staying in the moment and taking action, not fast forwarding to perceived doomed outcomes. This is mindfulness. Confidence builds with action, but if we are taking action, 
that is not mindful, then we're becoming reactive and that can be dangerous. Resilience builds by realizing that flawed narratives point to assumptions we need to challenge. And in that moment where we challenge the assumption with curiosity, not turn away from it, not feeling hurt in judgment, we allow the thought to flow through us. That's what flow is, not get stuck there. Mindful practices such as deep breathing that we execute in the fire of a crucial moment allow the assumption to move on, opening the door to wonder. What are more of these mindful practices? They start with noticing your thoughts and observing the triggers that bring on negativity. This noticing prepares you to not take the bait of doubtful thought, where the thought takes over, not the thinker. And I really want to help you develop some of those mindful daily practices. My clients and I work very closely on these because these are your go-to practices in your tool belt that help you when you get stuck, doubtful, judging, perfectionism sets in, when you feel resentment. The routines we establish create the structure around the life we want. Around a life by design, set up a structure around what you will honor in your practices of self-care and you will preserve it. You can establish any or all of the following that I'm going to go over today as part of a morning or evening routine. But establishing the routine is the most important part. Mindful daily practices ground us and build our self-awareness such that when we need to self-regulate our ego, our temper, our doubt, we have a go-to practice to do so. These practices can be as simple as reading a two-minute passage each day or more involved, such as a 20-minute meditation session. Either way, establish them and keep to them to build your executive and personal presence. Think of people you admire. They have a sense of calm, good reason about them. These practices build that calm. They keep your good reason from being hijacked by stress and doubt as you grow your self-control. Now I'm going to go through examples of what I call flow on the go. My clients have a flow on the go guide that they track these practices in. The process of visiting simple concepts each day as you grow your presence is crucial. You can write these down in a very special notebook or leave them on your nightstand, but just have fun with these practices. My clients have been tracking them for years. I've been using a flow on the go guide for years. And when I feel discord in my life, I make sure to spend ample time on these concepts and on my flow on the go sheet, because these get me and my clients through the darkest hour. So it's helpful to set a mantra every week. And what is a mantra? That's just a word or powerful phrase that is repeated to affirm its meaning and change your thought process. Your focus is on repeating it like you might a prayer or a song throughout the week to cement a new belief. Examples might be action conquers fear. Be the change you wish to see. Om, which is a sacred Hindu mantra where the entire universe is bound by the same stabilizing vibration. Om. Excellence does not require perfection. Get it right, not be right. These are mantras. And when you set one for the week, you can look at it 
at the beginning of every day and be reminded of this commitment that you're making to yourself. Also set a daily intention. This is something that changes every day. It's not kept for the week, but daily. An intention is simply a promise to yourself. Before you start your day each morning, set an oath to be the best person you can be in one specific area where you struggle. So an example of a daily intention might be, I will listen before I speak today. I will not judge. I will be positive. I will be patient. I will draw on X signature strength. I will pause before acting. You might use the same intention every day for a week, but you might change that intention based on what you're feeling and what you're dealing with. Mindful daily routines are things that you do each day and in the moment. And I suggest, and my clients all set three routines for the day. So you have a weekly mantra, you have a daily intention, and three routines that you do every day that keep you on track. These are routines that might be physical activity, meditation, prayer, a mindful walk, where you notice what you see, not what you are thinking. You're just staying in the moment, noticing flowers along the sidewalk, people that you pass. Another routine might be enjoying a hobby, a cup of tea, Notice the smell, taste, temperature of the tea, not your thoughts. Might be enjoying a pet or calling a parent or a child, yoga, journaling. Please don't reach for your phone in the morning before you finish your routines. For me, my mindful daily routines are these. I drink a very slow glass of water every morning with the vitamins that I take in the morning. I meditate every morning, and I do physical activity for me. It's free weights and yoga. Those are my three mindful daily routines, and I check them off that I do them every day. keeps me on track. Mindful daily routines are different than daily goals. Daily goals relate to your big picture vision, not not what's on your work calendar because your calendar is already set in Outlook or whatever device and technology that you use. But your daily goal should be around your big picture vision for your life. Are you creating a side hustle? Do you have a hobby that you're experimenting with? Set your daily goals the night before and allow your subconscious mind to create strategies for them. So that when you wake up in the morning, you're already tuned like a radio. You're already tuned on the right station. It's really refreshing in the morning when you begin your day to not have to say, well, what am I going to do today? Because that's already been established before you went to sleep. Then when you wake up and are ready for a productive day, instead of trying to figure out where to start, you're ready to go. When you write down your goals by hand, it is a formal commitment to yourself and far more likely to happen. We don't like to let ourselves down or witness what we did not accomplish. This is why writing it down makes it more easy to follow. Goals may be related to work, home, relationship, life. And if you don't achieve one, move it to the next day. No judgment. Every day I think it's important to do what I call daily noticing. On my flow on the go sheet, there's a little square. What am I noticing? Write down how you are valuable every day. 
Doodle or write down something new you are noticing. Flow involves mind, body, and spirit, and you may notice stress in a particular part of your body. Write that down. You may keep track of meals or healthy snacks. It is your sacred space, this daily noticing space. Keep track of what is changing for you here. And it's really fun to look back in your notebook on what you've been noticing and how things have been changing. Also, every day, write down your daily gratitude. Just one thing that you're grateful for at the end of the day. An evening reflection is a perfect time for this. We are reminding ourselves of what is going right in our lives. Write down one thing each day. This diffuses the trap of anger, resentment, fear, and anxiety because there's something today that we're grateful for. Not to be confused with when we are upset and feeling a certain way, trying to cover it over with a covering of, oh, I'm just going to be positive. No, this is just mindfully looking for, is there something I can be grateful for today, followed by the daily feeling check-in and writing down exactly what you are feeling. And you may be feeling sad, you may be feeling resentment, you may be feeling disappointment, frustration, hurt, fear, anger. Don't deny those feelings. Get in the habit of writing them down at the end of each day, identifying feelings and noticing where they're sitting in our body. Negative ones, again, are okay. I want to spend some very focused time talking about the still space, the name of this podcast, the still space, and what is exactly the still space. Viktor Frankl, a Jewish-Austrian neurologist, psychologist, and Holocaust survivor of four concentration camps, said, quote, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. I coach heavily around this concept because we have a choice in that space and we can choose whether to withdraw, whether to lash out, but we must first notice the space. And that's why we build mindful self-awareness. That's why we build our ability to self-regulate. And that's why ultimately we want self-acceptance because we can manage ourselves in this space. Dr. Frankel knew a lot about oppression and living in an anxious situation with no relief in sight. His triumph over tragedy was no accident. His mindset shift was key to his survival. It kept him from being constantly overwhelmed with feelings of helplessness, victimization, and delivered him the power of survival and freedom from these four concentration camps. In 1941, Dr. Frankel married Tilly Gosner, who was a station nurse at Rothschild Hospital. Soon after they were married, Tilly became pregnant, but the Nazis forced them to abort their child. In 1942, just nine months after marrying his wife, Dr. Franco and his family, who were living in Vienna at a concentration camp, his father died of starvation and pneumonia in 1943. His sister Stella escaped to Australia. In 1944, Franco and the surviving members of his family were taken to Auschwitz, where his mother and brother were gassed. His wife died later of typhus. 
Frankel himself spent a total three years in four different camps. Dr. Frankel eventually married Ellie Katrina Schwint in 1947. She was a practicing Catholic, and the couple respected each other's religious backgrounds, going to both church and synagogue and celebrating Christmas and Hanukkah. They had one daughter, Gabrielle, who went on to become a child psychologist. Think of how many times Dr. Frankel faced the still space. That moment where in the wink of an eye he could have lashed out, fled in fear, or withdrew into self-pity. He likely did all of these and more until he realized the consequences and how to manage his fear, until he realized and accepted that there was a choice to be made that must be made before thoughts take over good reason and behavior. You have this same choice every single day. You have a choice. You can choose to challenge your assumptions or fall prey to them. I hope that through this podcast, you learn to self-regulate. The still space is the tipping point. In the moment that you notice a negative, debilitating assumption, you have a wink's time to decide how to hinder yourself before the primitive brain takes over. You can lash out, run or withdraw, or you can pause. Just pause, and it starts with a very deep breath. Be still. Notice that fear is just your imagination. Set an intention. Choose how you will respond. You have power here. You are not a victim. And this practice will help you in executive presence, in your leadership, but also in your relationship with your children, with your parents, with teenagers, with friends anyone that you're in conflict with, anyone that you want to be more open to, the still space practice is where we gain our self-control, our composure, and our ability to observe our thoughts without becoming them. Who's in charge? The thinker of the thought. You are in charge. The thinker is in charge. Your goal is to narrow the time that it takes you to notice and spend time in the still space that's so that you may act on it in real time before fear and your ego take over. You might even use the action of winking, snapping your fingers, whistling, or again taking a very deep breath to remind yourself of the power in your choice, of the power in your pause. This physical act is a commitment to action. It is a pledge to be the thinker, not the thought. Action builds confidence. The wink, the deep breath, the whistle. It is interrupting the fight or flight or freeze pattern. If we miss the opportunity of the still space, the space closes and we are sucked into despair, into reaction, into over-emotion. I'm sure you've been there. We've all been there. Once we're off the cliff, once we've jumped off the cliff, we are down off that cliff. There is no way get, we're going to get back up on it. I don't want you to be stuck there. Think repeated arguments that you have that don't go anywhere. Repetitive depressive thoughts, frustration, 
Watch for the triggers because they ignite the overthinking and doubt that prompt despair. But those triggers are also our emotional warning system that we can find the still space. If being alone triggers overthinking, acknowledge that. Interrupt the pattern with a deep breath to make space for creativity. Call a friend, journal, meditate, listen to music, read. If you notice you are already overthinking, get curious about it in the still space. What's the worst that could happen? What is this thought trying to teach you? What are you afraid of? And is it inevitable to happen right now? If not, how do you wish to spend the rest of your week? You wouldn't get into a boat without a nautical map, binoculars, or oars. If you do notice you're in a stuck situation, take that deep breath, wink. Metaphorically, step out of the emotional churning with agility. You have choice here. This is executive presence. Respected leaders don't get emotional. They don't show resentment or pout or be passive-aggressive. These are signs of a needy ego. They learn how to find the still space before it's too late. You know, it's funny. My husband and I are now at the point where when we notice each other maybe getting into a stuck space, we will actually cue each other and say, still space, still space. That cue is enough of a pattern interrupt to break that stuck pattern of thinking of, oh, I'm getting trapped here. I'm feeling threatened. It's a really fresh breath of sunshine to be able to find the still space. Viktor Frankl found it to get him through atrocities that we can't even imagine today. I'm hoping you can find it to bring a little bit more ease to your life. I have something really special that I can't wait to share with you. Most of you know that I work by day as the CEO of a $31 million organization, and I coach a handful of clients in the evening. Now I have taken the tenets of mindful leadership and put that into a training program so that you can fast track your career leadership while also balancing that with a good night's sleep healthy eating habits, and close relationships. I call this program Mindful Leader Satisfied Life. Not only will you have the training, you also get one-on-one coaching with me, not a group, one-on-one coaching with me so that we can unravel your personal assumptions that are holding you back. You will no longer be unnoticed, undervalued, and inadequate, feel judged, and that others think that there's something wrong with you and you start thinking there's something wrong with you too because you're getting passed over for promotions, new roles, no longer doing all the things you hear you should be doing. Sigh of relief, right? With only defeat and the fear that failure is in your DNA forever dogging you in the back of your mind. You'll no longer be disconnected from colleagues, friends, and family, or following the shoulds that make you feel you're still behind the curve and might even lose everything altogether. No longer frustration about habits that show up in terms of snacking, disjointed relationships, vices, poor sleep. No longer making excuses while not actually getting any closer to high performance. So if you're interested in this program, all you have to do 
is go to my website, maryleegannon.com. Click on the link on the top that says Coach with Mary Lee. It explains all about the program. Fill out a few questions on the questionnaire so that I know a little bit more about you and I'll reach right out to you and we'll set up a time to talk and we'll get you started. No longer will you have to wake up and say, I missed an opportunity. I wish I had. Please remember that I can only take a few clients at a time and I already have a full book right now. So I'd like to make sure that you're on the list. Head over to maryleegannon.com. Click on Coaching with Mary Lee. Let's get started. I'm glad you were with me today and I invite you to subscribe to this podcast and get any of my free publications at my website, maryleegannon.com where you can also learn more about working with me. 